0: Good evening, listeners. It is the 5th of November, 2017, and you are tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lori Lutz.
1: And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages.
0: Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Ryan Lenz, and we are very excited to hear about his work. Ryan, do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about what you do?
2: Yeah, thanks, Lori. I'm excited to be here, too. Um, So I'm a Ph.D. student in the Botany and Plant Pathology Department. I work with uh, Jared Leboldis. And currently, I guess I work with uh, black cottonwood, which is also called popular, Populus trichocarpa, and it's like the model woody species to, use, to be used in science. And uh, so basically what I'm doing is to identify the genes that are involved with resistance to a fungal pathogen. And this fungal pathogen causes uh, leaf spots and also stem cankers, which are very detrimental to the, uh, these trees, both in the wild and on like plantations and stuff. So so basically what I'm doing is different uh, molecular techniques to identify which genes are involved in resistance, if there's some that are involved with susceptibility. And then same on the, f- the fungus side, I'm doing practically the same thing. I'm, I'm trying to identify which genes are used by the fungus to be more virulent, more um, pathogenic to the plant.
0: Great. So as a fellow plant pathologist, I find that super interesting. And <laughs> I know what stem canker is, but can you describe what that does to a tree?
2: Yeah, so basically what happens is the the, the fungus infects uh, the woody tissue of the plant and then it grows uh, what's called a necrotic lesion, which is just basically a, a black mass that's expanding through time and uh, it weakens the tree. It, it makes it more susceptible to things like uh, wind damage. Um, so yeah, it's very detrimental.
0: Yeah, so essentially it can cause dead tissue in the tree and that can cause the tree to literally break... In half, yeah, or for the for the tops to fall off, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool.
1: And then before we get too far, I think it might be helpful for our listeners to kind of understand what are the ecological benefits or economical benefits of the poplar tree you're studying in particular.
2: Yeah, so that's that's a good point. So, uh, populus trichocarpa—that's uh, the native species here in the West—and um, it's specifically found in riparian areas, so uh, river ecosystems. It's a foundational species. It's very important. Um, for erosion control and other things like that. Um, but this pathogen, this is actually a non-native pathogen to the west. It's native to the east um, where it's like um, it grows with the eastern cottonwood or populous deltoides, and it's slowly moving its way to the west, and uh, populous trichocarpa or black cottonwood is very susceptible. So that's the ecological um, point that we want to avoid. We don't want the, the pathogen to be too destructive in these river ecosystems. And then also economically, um, uh, poplar plantations are very common for biofuels, pulp production, paper, uh, things of that nature. And um, one of the major diseases is septoria canker caught, and that's, that's the name of the fungus is uh, septoria musiva. So the septoria canker is uh, one of the main issues, one of the main disease problems for um, people in forest agriculture growing poplar. Um, yeah. And
1: how quickly does poplar grow? I think this is pretty incredible.
2: Yeah, that's that's the other thing. Poplar grows extremely fast. That's why it's also nice to be used um, in the science for science because it's very easy to propagate in the greenhouse and do a lot of different studies with it. Um, but I think I read somewhere that um, certain poplar hybrids can grow upwards. Oh man, I feel like I'm going to say this wrong, but I think eight meters in a year. But that's pretty well, incredible. But they
0: can be harvested in like somewhere between eight to twelve years.
2: Yeah. Is that right? Yep. Yeah.
0: So in and just um so since some of our listeners, I presume would be in Oregon. Um, it's, there's a chance that they may have driven through Eastern Oregon on I-84 and it's pretty, um, it's a pretty distinctive landmark, at least within the last decades to see the, um, poplar plantations. And, um, there's, I think it's like six miles or something and there's just miles and miles of these poplar trees. And this is the, um, the study species that you work with, right?
2: Yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah, same, same genus, uh, that's yeah, different poplar hybrids. Okay. and the, Yeah, that's the one near Boardman. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, they're taking it out because it hasn't been that productive there. Um, and they're changing it to other agriculture. Um, but actually, a really successful plantation of these poplar plantations is near Eugene. It's called the BioCycle Farm. And uh, so the, it's basically the city of Eugene is growing... Uh, upward I think it 's like three hundred some acres of poplar trees, and then they 're they 're recycling their um, city sewage waste their water waste and irrigating these poplar trees with with that waste and I think it 's about thirty percent um, they 're taking out of their like sewer system they 're able to recycle thirty percent of their sewage waste water by by using poplar so it 's it 's quite um, beneficial for those types of uses as well.
0: Yeah, and I think um, it's my understanding that that's one of the first situations where a city is using their sewage in order to fertilize a popu- um, a, a plantation. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really fascinating to me.
1: So not only are these poplars able to, uh, you know, turn poop into money, pretty cool stuff, <laughs> uh, but, you know, also provide an erosion control benefit along streams to, you know, increase fish habitat, to, you know, provide a economical benefit, whether it's for pulp or paper, Um So there's all these good things about poplar. It's a very useful species, but they're plagued by this fungus that, you know, causes them to be a little bit more susceptible to, you know, high wind events where they snap and these kinds of things. So let's get a little bit more into the weeds of, you know, how exactly you're trying to find out the interaction between this fungus that causes, you know, a a, a detrimental effect and the tree itself using genetic methods. So describe that a little bit more.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to get a little scientific here. Uh, so, so basically, um, before my time here, uh, our group did a very large population study, population genetic study where they infected a bunch of different genotypes of the uh, populous trichocarpa with a few different, uh, genotypes of the fungus. And then they, they rated these plants on their levels of resistance or susceptibility. And basically, um, what they used was association mapping, which is just a fancy way of saying they used uh, genetic markers to find regions of the genome that are used for, or that, that are related to their phenotype that they're looking at. So in this case, it's resistance to this fungus. And what they found was four candidate genes, three of them that are involved with resistance and one of them that's involved with susceptibility. Um, the susceptibility factor is quite interesting. That's the one I'm working on um, currently. So, Basically what my goal is is to confirm this previous study using molecular genetics tools, such as the CRISPR-Cas9 system, which enables researchers to specifically target a gene in, uh, in their species, make a cut in the DNA, and then there's a mutation, which which basically, you know, for lack of a better term, erases the gene from the genome. So the idea is if I can erase the susceptibility factor from uh, susceptible plants, then it will no longer get disease from this pathogen. It's not that black and white, but that's that's kind of kind of the idea. So that's what I'm currently working on right now is uh, um, doing the transformation system in Populus trichocarpa to knock out this gene.
0: Yeah, and in this work you're doing, you're using a fairly modern technique to do that to Absolutely. to make those cuts and to edit those genes and see how that affects downstream. So do you want to talk a little bit just about what that is?
2: Yeah, so CRISPR-Cas9, I believe I want to say it was 2013 when it when it was uh published, but Which in science streams that's like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's remarkable how it just blew up like in use too. like all the papers that came out after that and all the use that it's, um, currently being used for, you know? And, uh, yeah. So ever since then they've just been improving the technique and uh, even more recently they've, they've started using it in plants like more efficiently. They've been optimizing the system in plants. So, and that's the thing about plants. It's been really hard to specifically target genes in this new technology, um, helps that out a lot. So basically, yeah, it's, it's an advanced technology where you can just, you pick out a gene, you can make a cut and then, yeah, it's the only thing that you're editing, which is quite remarkable. I'd like to emphasize that point because prior to CRISPR, oh so let me back up
1: in like, if I take everything you're saying at face value, you're basically identifying a specific
2: gene or genes in a genome of which there are hundreds of thousands, give or take. I'm not sure what the number is in populace, but it's, I would say like sixty thousand genes or something like that. Okay, but so the genome is yeah it's, very large.
1: It's huge, right? Yeah. And you're able to you know find four or three or maybe one in particular that you go ahead and you know snip away for for lack of better terms, and then you can essentially test that from an experimental technique. If I snip that gene away, does it you know increase or decrease you know fungal resistance? Which is awesome, but before CRISPR. Were you even able to do such things from an experimental perspective?
2: Not as straightforward. So before CRISPR-Cas9, there was a system called Talons or um, Tal effector-like nucleases. I'm, I'm not going to get into the details of that. And then before that was the zinc finger nucleases. I believe that was the late 90s. Um, they still have their applications, especially Talons. Uh, but yeah, the CRISPR-Cas9 system just makes it much easier to implement in in a research setting, especially.
0: Yeah, especially when it comes to the the time yeah. involved in, in those techniques. So about how long does it take you to – if you have all of the ingredients ready and, and things ready for you to do the work, how long does it take you from start to finish, do you think?
2: Yeah, so if I am successful in getting everything prepped, getting mm-hmm. all, all my ingredients from the grocery store, if you will, <laughs> and then if I start baking the cake, which is making the transformation and then uh, screening for – actual edits edited plants taste testing yeah taste testing after (laughs) (laughs) that whole process to when i'm delivering it to you know the world um i don't know best case scenario would be six months i guess to get a plant that's uh that's changed and then i've tested it for resistance and i can say yes this gene is used for susceptible or is a susceptibility factor, or if you're looking at a different gene, yes, this gene is used for bigger fruit, for example, or something.
0: So, yeah. and Oh, sorry.
1: So the way I see it is,
2: you know, you're able to to
1: build a skyscraper with, you know, all these, you know, big machinery, whereas before CRISPR, you were probably doing something on the, you know, Egyptian pyramids where it was just you know, <laughs> manual labor, and it would take forever. <laughs> yeah, if yeah. you could
2: even do it in the first place. Yeah, pre this technology, is a lot harder to specifically target these genes, um, In most plants, I'm I'm fairly confident to say that it was like near impossible to be able to make these edits before these uh, types of technologies came around. So it's quite remarkable for plants.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we've been talking about um, one species in particular, the black cottonwood Um, But your work isn't just applicable to the black cottonwood because you're interested in using this as a model system. So do you want to tell our listeners kind of a little bit about what a model system is and how this, what you're learning can be applied?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, That's a good point. So uh, black cottonwood has been used as like the model system for woody plants because basically a model system is a species that, has a small genome easy to work with and it's, in this case it's also diploid which makes it easy easier genetics um it's fast growing we talked about that earlier <clears throat> earlier already um it's very applicable or a lot of different molecular techniques are able to be done on it and it's got and then on the other side uh with the fungus it's it's kind of a unique interaction it's a it's a non-host it's it's a necrotrophic um, pathogen, which will make for some interesting studies. So in the case with black cottonwood, what we hope is to be able to uh, find these generalized genes that are used for resistance on the plant side, but also w- what are the what about this necrotrophic pathogen makes it a pathogen to woody species and then what makes it a necrotroph? Um, you know, things like that. So that's basically what a model species is. And you can think of other model species. So Arabidopsis is the typical one for plants because um, that one's even way way easier to work with. Um, but then you got, you know, think of like mice and then some bacteria, um, yeast. Those are all other examples of model, model systems. Um, so yeah, basically what a, a model system does is it generalizes what goes on in other related species. So if we can find some genes in black cottonwood that are used for resistance, there might be a homologue, or in other words, a gene that's very similar in a different woody species that's um, used for resistance in a different necrotrophic pathogen.
1: So I I thought of this analogy before, and feel free to you know poke holes in my analogy. But the the way I see it is, you know, when you're setting these model systems, it's kind of like seeing if you're thinking of a football game or a soccer game, it's kind of like seeing you know plays of that team that you're gonna you know go up against you know next Sunday. <laughs> it's like seeing all the plays that they run. Yeah. You know, so that way you know if the running back gets behind the quarterback in the situation, they're gonna run to the left or throw to the right. Yeah. So it's not gonna be perfect every single time, but this you know if you study a model organism or you know all the plays that they have run in the past you're much better able to predict what they might do in the future. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy. Phew. <laughs> I passed <laughs> pass the test. <laughs> so we're about halfway through our interview. And for those just listening in, this is Inspiration Dissemination, a radio show where we speak to graduate students about their research. And today we have Ryan Lenz on. And he is a plant geneticist and a really superstar uh, but <laughs> thanks <laughs> but um I think I'd like to actually get into how you how you got to Oregon State in the first place um, because you know studying uh, studying cottonwood is wasn't your first choice <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah I, I guess I guess not, but I mean, I love trees and i i don't I, I love it here, so it's I guess the path has has brought me in this spot. I didn't think I would exactly go, but it's been, it's been great. Like, uh, so I grew up in North Dakota, a uh, small town. I worked on the family farm, uh, just on the other side of the river in Minnesota. Um, so basically on this farm, we grew like wheat, soybeans, uh, a little bit of corn, things like that. And just growing up, I was always really interested in how the different wheat varieties would, would, um, perform each year. So like we chose certain varieties for higher yield, but they've might not produce high enough protein. So then we'll we'll have a few acres of a different variety that has more protein, but it's a little bit shorter, a little bit, you know, less, uh, less yield and stuff. So I I was really fascinated by it. And I was always interested in the stats of um, each field, like how did the yield do? And was that what we expected? So um, that kind of combined with like, I, I always enjoyed science growing up too, going through high school. So when it came time to look at uh, colleges, I, I decided to stay close to home. I'm a big bison fi- fan, North Dakota State University. Uh, <laughs> go bison. Anyways. <laughs> uh, so so when I was looking for schools, I, I wanted to find something that could kind of combine agriculture and then also my, my love of science and my curiosity about these plants. And I came across this, this program called biotechnology, which like – like every student going into college I didn't know exactly what I want to do and I got really lucky for choosing biotech cuz yeah just it was it was a perfect fit for me and I'm really great, grateful um yeah, this is kind of long-winded explanation of how I got to no, I think Oregon I, State, but
0: yeah, I think it's great. I think it's great that you have those roots in agriculture, and you you've always had this curiosity, and that same curiosity is still something that is driving you in your work today. And yeah. I think that's amazing. And um, so you got your degree in biotechnology, mm-hmm. and then um, you went on from there, and you got you had an internship.
2: Yes, yeah. So during my undergrad. Um, I decided to take an, an internship with a biotech company where I did like basic field work as kind of miniature farming where we actually were like kind of the front lines of testing these different uh, varieties that they're that they're going to be released or maybe some different traits that they've integrated and they just want to see how they perform um,
1: can you describe a little bit of this you know trial and error procedure that you're doing on a small scale that you know, that like, you know, for this biotech company, you're, you know, does, you know, species A work out in this situation or species B, you know, and then, you know, how you decide, you know, which will then like probably, can you just describe a little bit of that to our, to our listeners? It's like literal field trials.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess at, at the stage where we were at, so it's already gone through the laboratory testing, very small scale. Um, they've seen, let's just, let's just say they were comparing an old variety. We'll call that variety A and they got a new variety. That's just changed a little bit. Maybe they, um, did a breeding with a wild, um, a more wild type, and then it's more disease resistance, for example. So, anyways, uh, they made the cross. Now they got line B. So they'll. What we did is, uh, you know, s- small section of a farmer's land. So it's great to have uh, farmers that are willing to work with these companies where we can do these these studies. Um, but anyways, uh, so they're growing side by side. These different these different lines of the plant that you're studying. And then at the end of the year, you make your harvest. You make, And throughout the year, you're making notes about its morphology, its height, you know, that kind of thing. But at the end of the year, you know, you got your protein and your um, yield are basically your, your top two traits that you're looking at. <clears throat> but yeah, at the end of the year, we had all these different lines that we, we gave the results to the scientists and it was actually a really cool meeting where all the scientists came and, um, to our warehouse basically and we, we had a big meeting, they they presented on what they did to get these lines and and that's, that was from a genetic perspective, what they were right. doing in the lab in order
1: for you to be able to plant it instead yeah, of Yeah, exactly,
2: measure. that's that's when I really started to see the connection of, of field, or well I guess laboratory to the field and I realized that that's something I really want to do, I want to be able to identify what genes are involved with these different traits um, and then yeah. It's,
1: so this it's connection between the laboratory and the field, there is an amazing picture on our blog of you <laughs> as a child looking at the at, at at some wheat. This goes back to your original story. You know, as you were a kid growing up on the farm, you know, you had different wheat varietals and looking at, well, that one's a little bit taller, but this one has more protein. Mm-hmm. So you know that that idea of, you know, obviously these behave differently on the landscape, um, but then this was the first time that you were able to kind of see the front end of that work from a genetic perspective. Yeah, exactly. This is the amount of work and effort it took in order to get to these different species and mm-hmm. varieties. And that was your kind of first exposure to the genetics end of things.
2: Yeah, exactly. That was, that was when I was like, yeah, I definitely want to move more into that direction and uh, be able to identify these genes and put them in the plants and see the end result. So, yeah. So
1: then f- from there, how did you decide to continue on school?
2: Yeah, so while I was working uh for this company, uh they recommended grad school and I I never really considered grad school before this time. And, you know, I didn't really um, I didn't really have any any idea what it really was at that time. Um and, and then they said if you're doing research, you get paid. And I was like, "Oh, well that's a win-win. I can I can learn more about what I want to do and I get paid." I mean, that's that's great. I mean, obviously you don't get paid a lot, but you're going <laughs> you're still going to school. It's it's great. So then uh, what I did, I I started uh, started grad school still at North Dakota State. Uh, I did my master's there in plant sciences where I did that really applied genetics um, stuff for my my master's thesis. And then about halfway through my master's, I realized I want to get more into the technical molecular stuff because of my biotech background. And that's when I started looking for other schools to uh, finish my PhD. So it was, it was always my goal to get my PhD when I decided I wanted to do grad school. Um, but. But yeah, I was fortunate to realize that I wanted to get more into the nitty gritty molecular stuff. And yeah, I've interviewed at a bunch of different schools, and then I, I I came out to Oregon State. Oregon State was honestly my favorite when I was (laughs) looking at schools because it just seemed like there's so much to do. Corvallis, you got, you're it's pretty centralized. You know, you got the Cascades an hour, hour to the east, and you got the Pacific Ocean, and yeah, Portland, and yeah, just great people. And anyways, so. During the interview process, I ended up emailing back and forth with Jared LeBoldis, uh, who I work with now, and he's like, yeah, I I want somebody to come in and uh, do some molecular work, specifically the CRISPR-Cas9, to knock out these genes that we found. And I was like, yeah, that's that's perfect, because I want to learn how to use that system. It's a model system, so um, these techniques are used in any other species, really. So I knew I could take what I've been learning here and use it in any plant species that I would like.
0: Yeah. And so moving forward, what are your, what are your plans after completing um, your PhD program?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. So hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll get some good results about these different genes and then, you know, be established um, scientists of being able to use these techniques. And then I want to, I guess right now my, my idea is to go into industry I uh, work for a biotech company, for example, where I'm still doing very similar work, um, trying to identify genes, link them to a phenotype. And then <clears throat> from there, eventually I'd like to get uh, close to home as I can, you know, family and friends and stuff like that. So, yeah, I guess that's that's kind of the idea. Be yeah. a plant molecular geneticist, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think, that, I think that's great. I think it's good to have a plan, and I think it's great for you to um, – want to get back in that uh, family dynamic and get back to your roots again, like Mm -hmm. full coming full circle all the way. Yeah.
1: So speaking of that, I'm very curious because, you know, from growing up on a farm where you probably did a bunch of manual labor, like picking (laughs) rocks out of the field, you know, and then looking at at wheat. And then now now you have this higher degree where Mm. you're not just picking rocks out of the field, but you're individually snipping out specific genes. Like that's pretty incredible, first of all. (laughs) But but I I am curious now that you know the entire life cycle of, you know, this agricultural industry, Mm -hmm. you know, actually being on the farm to actually, you know, developing specific species that you could plant you yeah. know, for, you know, different, you know, fungal resistances. What is your ideal job in the future considering, you know, pretty much the ins and outs of everything?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess it's always anybody's goal to work their way up the ladder, you know, like, like you said, with like having a full circle of life experience around plants, um, going from the farm to these individual traits, these, these genes, um, Hopefully I can move up to some sort of like supervisorial position or maybe, I mean, it's kind of a long shot, but my, my biggest dream is to have my own company one day where I can do my different uh, research and then also have that headquartered maybe at the the family farm if, if they're willing to (laughs) spare some, (laughs) some acres for me to do uh, some studies. But I mean, that's, that's definitely long-term goal, but.
1: Ryan Lenz, LLC. You'll have a science barn on the side of your parents' uh, farm. there you go. (laughs) So we're coming close to the end of time. And for the show, we always have two traditions. And the first tradition we have is to ask our guest uh, some advice. So what advice do you have and who is it for?
2: Yeah, I guess guess my advice would be more applicable to undergrads at this point, I guess. Uh, So when I was an undergrad, you know, taking classes – Certain classes definitely pique your interest. You know, everybody has to take the generals, but uh, eventually you will be taking something and you will be like, oh, that really sticks. And then once you feel like that, like don't be afraid to put yourself out there with these professors that are teaching you, like uh, ask them f- to work in a lab or la- ask them about different companies that are related to your interests. Um, if, if they can't help you directly, then I mean, they have a large network of people within the department and other universities that they can really guide you and and help you on your path and that's kind of what happened with me so I was taking a class and uh, it was basically my first class where I was starting to do these molecular techniques Uh, it was was doing it in yeast Uh, it was a biochemistry class and I asked I asked the professor I was really interested in his class and I was like I would like to keep working on this uh, more on a research basis and yeah he gave me a chance and I worked in his lab for about a year and it was a great experience and kind of led led me to this path that I'm on now. So
1: I'd like to emphasize that point that you took the initiative to ask your professor of, I am interested in this subject and I want to do more. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really daunting as an undergrad to ask your professor who is, you know, the, you know, the the top hat in the ivory tower, you know, Oh, they're so scary, you know, Um, (laughs) but, and even if this professor, even if they don't have funding immediately, they probably know somebody else that could use some help in the lab so I would really encourage an intergrads listening to ask your professors whether or not they need some help in the lab because they're genuinely interested in, in, in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Definitely. And there's also a lot of um, volunteer opportunities just to kind of get your feet wet and see if doing work in the lab is something you're even interested in. So
1: yeah, I'll yeah. always take a volunteer note taker. Like, <laughs> if you can transcribe notes, you can be helpful to me. And I'm sure a lot of graduate students would say the same. Yeah,
0: <laughs> definitely. <laughs> All right. So our other tradition is for you to choose a song. So do you want to tell us the song you chose and a little bit about why you chose it?
2: Yeah. So I chose a song by the band America and, um, I chose this song way back. I think it was my second year in undergrad. I was taking a, an organic chemistry class. And this is another shout out to professors. I mean, the little things you do stick with this people. So don't don't be afraid uh, to try different things. But anyway, so this professor asked the class to provide a theme song for, you know, th- that day's uh, class theme. And um, so this was early in O-Chem. So we were starting to learn about nomenclature, basic chemistry, nomenclature, and I I just on a whim I was like, yeah, why don't we play the song? It's uh, no na- I don't even know the name of the song. Horse <laughs> with no a name. Horse with no name. <laughs> so yeah, it's got name right in it. Uh, yeah, I recommended it, and he he picked it, and that was one of the three that he chose for me that year. So I thought, I guess that semester, which I thought was pretty cool. But yeah, that's that story.
0: <laughs> yeah, great.
1: Nice. Well, Ryan, I'd like to thank you for being so gracious with your time. We really appreciate you having you on, and we look forward to seeing Ryan LLC uh, <laughs> s- s- somewhere in the future.
0: Yeah. yeah, for sure. Thank you, guys.
2: It's been a blast.
0: Thank you. On the first part of the journey I was looking at all the life. There were plants and birds and rocks and things